Pensando el coronavirus con Jorge Fontevecchia. Con Jorge Fontevecchia. Es hora de que comprendamos que estamos cuidando la salud de los artistas. De asegurar la continuidad de nuestra vida democrática y de nuestras instituciones. Por el coronavirus, y fue muy difícil, y lo hicimos muy construir económica y socialmente nuestro país. Y lo haremos cuando hayamos superado el virus y evaluado el impacto. Pero aún gibt es todavía una terapia contra el coronavirus. Dengue es peor que el coronavirus hoy. Yo diría que sí, hoy es peor. Nadie puede moverse de su residencia. Todos tienen que quedarse Todos en sus casas. Todos tienen que quedarse en sus casas. Uno no entiende, es mucho más fantasía la cuestión del coronavirus. Pensando el coronavirus con Jorge Fontevecchia. A profound conversation with British journalist Gillian Ted. Gillian. Uh, let me begin with, in the collapse of uh, the crisis of 1929, governments were slow to react, but this time the governments are quickly reacted with fiscal stimulus package and monetary stimulus. Do you think that this difference of speed between 1929 and this crisis of coronavirus of response could make this crisis uh, less or shorter than the 1929 or not? Well, I think that just as in medical science, mm -hmm. doctors have learned from the past to administer better medicine, now we're seeing in financial and economic science, the policymakers learning from previous mistakes and trying to ensure they act quickly to get um, some kind of you know, remedy. And it's a bit like treating a patient with a heart attack right now. They know what to do in terms of attaching the machines to shock the patient back to life and stop them dying from lack of oxygen. The problem though is that it's one thing to treat a heart attack in economic terms, it's another thing to build somebody who's actually healthy in the longer term and able to really um, flourish and be vibrant. And the question that we face today is that yes, the policymakers have managed to prevent the worst of the crisis spiraling out of control. It's not clear, though, that they know how to put the economies really back on the path towards health. Um, the marginal contribution of the effects of the financial aggregates are decreasing. Uh, when the interest rates that are already at zero, could the new forms of quantitative easing not generate more relief? Well, I think we are already reaching, unfortunately, the limits of what um, monetary policy can do because monetary policy typically acts on the economy through three channels it makes it a lot easier for consumers or companies to borrow money and cheaper it boosts asset prices and tends to boost the general sense of confidence in the economy and it encourages people to move their holdings out of say government bonds to other riskier types of investment, which again is intended to spur activity in the economy as a whole. Now, the problem today is that in the time of COVID-19, demand has collapsed. So no matter how cheap money is, consumers and com companies are not going to want to borrow. And the problem is that you can certainly push the investment, the money, into other types of riskier investment, and that's needed because right now there's around $4.8 trillion worth of cash sitting on the sidelines in the global financial system, which is not being used because people are so scared. So you need to move that money into productive investments, 
But again, it's not clear that people would do that until the medical and economic outlook is, is much more clear. What is clear, though, is that if you just keep pushing money into the system at a time when confidence is low and people don't want to borrow, you are at risk of creating asset bubbles and distortions in some strange places. We've seen that many times before, and my big concern is that that is what could happen today if we just keep relying on monetary policy rather than using fiscal policy to help create a response to the crisis. Gillian, you, you anticipate the last global crisis of 2008 and 2009, and it was one of the greatest specialists that you was reflected in your book, Full Goal. Uh, how is this crisis similar and different of the last one? Well, the big difference between the current crisis and the last crisis is that the last crisis was a financial crisis which started in finance, mm -hmm. in the sense that you had a really big dislocation and distortion in the financial system because bankers had been repackaging mortgage securities or mortgages into securities on a massive scale. And when the mortgages started to default, essentially the entire, if you like, Ponzi scheme that had been driving so much of the financial system began to unravel. So that was a financial crisis that started in finance and for which finance-based tools were appropriate as a policy response. The crisis today, by contrast, is really a real-world economic shock, first and foremost, in the sense that a medical crisis emergency around corona has caused demand to collapse and to deliberately be shut down by the governments as they impose the lockdowns. So it's a real tangible economic crisis, which may start to have more and more impact on the financial system too, and we've seen that in some sectors. But the important implication is you can't cope with a real-world economic crisis just with financial tools. You need more than that. And until we have a medical solution, and until we have the beginnings of some kind of economic recovery, which will rely on fiscal policy as much, if not more, than monetary policy, it's going to be very hard to see any real end to what's happening today. Did your doctorate in anthropology allow to you discover keys or trends in the coronavirus crisis that the economists without this training can see? Well, I happen to think that cultural anthropology is one of the most important intellectual disciplines there is, but also, sadly, one of the most under-recognized and under-appreciated more widely. And many people that think that anthropology is just about studying remote, exotic places, um, primitive, simple societies, rituals, bones, things like that. But in reality, what anthropology is, is a tool for getting a holistic vision of society and looking not just at the things we talk about, but also the things we don't talk about, the areas of what we call social silence. And so what anthropology gives people today is the ability to look beyond economic models and to set things into context, which is desperately badly needed because our models of the economy that policymakers and financiers use tend to be very limited and narrow. They exclude many important things like the environment, like issues of inequality, 
like issues of, say, even medical risks. These are all called externalities. And anthropology as a discipline looks at externalities and actually says externalities are as important as what's in the model. And that perspective helped me to spot the 2008 financial crisis coming along. And I think it's also very important for making sense of what's happening today. And there's one other important point, which is this. Anthropology as a discipline came out of the idea of studying people all around the world. And it's been so easy in the West for the elite to arrogantly assume that what happened in other parts of the world didn't matter, say, in America or Europe. But as we've seen with COVID-19, the reality is we're all linked in a chain of humanity. And if the weakest link in that chain breaks, we all suffer. It's very clear in a pandemic, but it's also very clear in other areas of our life, say with climate change. And because anthropology has always been dedicated to trying to study all societies around the world and recognize that they're all valuable, they also have a lot to teach the current policymakers in the West. Because when COVID-19 first started, there was a temptation amongst people in the White House in America or Europe to say, oh, it's happening in Wuhan. Where is Wuhan anyway? They're completely different from us. They're alien from us. We can ignore them. That's the usual response. The reality is you cannot afford to do that. We all need to understand each other, to understand how the world works when we're so interconnected and to do so in a holistic way, looking at externalities too. And in this way, Julian, how could globalization, uh, the evolution of the globalization after the COVID-19? Um, I think we're seeing a very interesting push-pull factor here. Mm -hmm. And when people say globalization, I think it's important to realize there are four different aspects of globalization which are important. You have the movement of traded goods, which is the aspect that people tend to focus on because that's the most obvious. And that's the kind of thing where Donald Trump has tried to essentially take a more protectionist stance and to stop the movement of goods. You have the movement of money, which is less visible and has been expanding dramatically in recent years, but is beginning to slow down. You have the movement of people, which of course has been on a continuous upward trajectory until really now, because of COVID, quite literally, it stopped people in their tracks. And then you have the movement of ideas and information, which has really accelerated in recent years because of the internet. Now, if you look at those four aspects of globalization, what you can see is that there's certainly a direction of slowing down the movement of goods, protectionism is coming back, trade is slowing down, global trade, and I suspect that to continue. In terms of the movement of money, that's extremely interesting because there was very rapid financial globalization taking place until 2008, and then it really began to fall quite sharply. It came back to a degree in the last three or four years, but I suspect another consequence of the current crisis and the mood of protectionism will be that financial globalization starts to slow down as well. <clears throat> then you have the movement of people. Well, that has been accelerating across the world until really now, and it's not clear to me whether we're actually going to see the movement of people slowing down after COVID-19 or not. I suspect probably not, because we are seeing a lot of migration and the pressure for migration is increasing, not decreasing. 
But the really important one to think about that everyone ignores is that globalization also means movement of ideas through the internet. And there are fears that the growing determination of China to build its own internet will lead to what people like Eric Schmidt of Google call the splinternet, which is a separation between the Chinese-centered internet and the American-centered internet. And that could happen further down the road. But at the moment, one thing that's very striking is that the globally integrated internet is still more or less operating. And information is flashing around the world at exponential speed. And that can be bad because it can spread false news, it can spread fear, it can spread panic of the sort we've seen recently, but it can also spread good ideas and learning. And if you look at how scientists are now collaborating to try and find a cure for COVID-19 through the internet and look at how they're copying ideas from each other and best practices, it's very striking that the globalization of information is not yet in retreat at all. On the contrary, I think that part will keep accelerating in the coming years. Uh, how do you think this future balance between China and United States, uh, not only in Internet, in all the things? Well, I think that if a prize was given for writing a very timely book, It should go to Professor Graham Allison from Harvard Kennedy School, who came up with the most brilliant piece of analysis a few years ago, very quite recently, called the Thucydides Trap. And that looks back at history and points out that in the past, whenever you've had a dominant geopolitical power faced with a rapidly rising rival, then you almost always end up with war. In fact, in 16 out of the 20 examples that he looks at, that is exactly what happened. And the question now is, can the US and China be any different? Because the US has been dominant now for the best part of a century, and China is essentially trying to rise and to challenge it. And the question, which is completely unclear, is can you manage that um, peacefully? We know that China will not stop its rise and challenge anytime soon, willingly. We know that America will not step back. So what we're seeing with the skirmishes around the trade war, a potential, what I think will next be a currency war, because China is trying to weaken its currency at the moment, or rather letting the currency become weaker. We could see the beginnings of a capital war, and by that, beginnings of control on the movement of money. You've seen Donald Trump basically telling U.S. pension funds they cannot invest in Chinese um, equities. Um, whether we see that accelerating or not is not clear, but the longer-term trajectory of a clash, I think, is not going to go away. Uh, with your own experience as a correspondent in the former Soviet Union, uh, does a G2 war repeat itself where the United States is now confrontating with China and ended up uh, the living multilateralism behind? I think the reality is we don't have a G2 world, we have a G0 world mm -hmm. where nobody's in charge, tragically. Mm -hmm. um, that's not my idea, that's a brilliant framing um, put forward by Ian Bremer, who is a political analyst in New York. And, you know, we had the G7 before 2008, um, which really was the dominant group. 
We then, after 2007, we began to have the G20 because they essentially brought in other emerging market countries into that fold. But the G20 has been remarkably um, ineffectual in recent um, weeks in dealing with COVID. Um, for the most part, they've not done anything notable. Um, they've not even provided an effective reactive response, let alone a proactive sort of policy ideas to deal with the problems. So I think we're probably heading most realistically towards a G0 because I don't see the US and China, unfortunately, working together to try and deliver any serious policy response anytime soon. Julian, the printing of money of central banks around the world are making, could it generate a return of inflation in the future? I think it's certainly possible to imagine that in the long term mm -hmm. there could be a return to inflation or price growth. But in the long term, it's really the key issue here because I don't see how in the short to medium term you're going to have deflation given the inflation, given the scale of the demand shock, um, given the degree of spare capacity in labor and other areas right now, and also given the fact that digital networks are increasingly acting as a deflationary factor. So never say never. But I don't see that as a major risk right now. And it's about deflation. Is the fall of the price of oil a symptom of a syndrome where the loss of value of one sector drag the other and the other is spiralizing downward? Um, I think that in terms of what's happening with the oil price, yeah. what you're seeing is really three things coming to fruition. Firstly, the world has had a dramatic demand shock. So there's less demand for oil right now. That could change. That could definitely change as we begin to recover. And you're already seeing some hints of that happening in Asia. But what you are seeing in the oil price most immediately has been a demand shock and a loss of economic demand. Secondly, though, you're also seeing the consequences of a financial shock in the sense that oil and other commodities have increasingly become financialized to use the jargon in recent years, whereby investors are buying them as one way to invest um, or if not speculate um, in various tools. And you know, in any financial shock, when you get turmoil in one part of the market, you get people withdrawing from other parts of the market, often in quite unpredictable ways. So financial contagion has also been a key issue. The third issue, though, is the shift towards green resources and a recognition that, in fact, energy sector stocks, energy sector suppliers are going to face a very changed environment no matter what happens in the coming years. And one of the big buzzwords in the business sector in the last couple of years has been stranded assets, meaning that assets that sit on the balance sheets of companies that could become worthless in the future because of policy or regime changes. And I think that's absolutely what we're dealing with today in relation to the oil and gas sector, because essentially what you have is investors who are saying, even before the COVID-19 crisis, that there's going to be a dramatic decline in the usage of carbon emitting fuels, and there's going to be a shift towards green fuels. And so all of these assets, which have looked so valuable on the books of energy companies will no longer be so valuable. And all of that is contributing to the pain of the oil price decline, which of course has all kinds of knock-on implications again. Julian, uh, what possibilities do you assign 
to the fact that after the coronavirus, the world is transforming for worse or for better, and why? Sorry, I couldn't hear that question. Say it again. What possibilities do you assign to the fact that after the coronavirus, the world will be transformed for worse or for better, and why? I think it's too early to tell whether we're going to be transformed for better or worse. And the reason is very simple, that um, after World War II, many people expected in a country like the UK, when the soldiers came back from fighting the war, mm -hmm. that they would simply vote in the old government that had won the war, and that everything would go back to how it was before the war. And in fact, what happened was the returning soldiers voted out the um, government of Winston Churchill and demanded significant political and social change. Um, there was a tagline called Build Back Better that was used very widely after World War II for how society should go. And that had a real mobilizing impact on politics and other areas. And um, it led to major reforms like the creation in the UK of the welfare state um, in the US that led to major reforms like the GI Bill giving mm -hmm. American veterans access to education, which had a dramatic impact on the level of social mobility in the subsequent decades. Now, we're already hearing a lot of people talking about this tagline of build back better being used in relation to societies after COVID-19. And I fully expect in the coming months, we'll hear a lot more about Build Back Better on all levels. You have companies saying, how can we build back better to create better workforces? Um, you have in America a demand now that um, so-called gig workers who have been lacking in benefits in healthcare until now will start to have that after the coronavirus. You're having groups like the World Bank and IMF beginning to rethink some of their operations. And there's been some really quite significant changes in that respect. Um, and I think more broadly, you're going to have, certainly in the West, more of a discussion about equity, about social responsibility, about worker inclusion in America, about healthcare reform. I think all of those issues are going to be on the table. And if, and the key word is if, if that leads to a proper attempt to build back better and to tackle the policy reforms in a coordinated, proactive way, then yes, I feel optimistic the world will be better after COVID-19. If, however, what happens is that the anger and the pain that's been unleashed by the current economic shock actually fuels more polarization, then it will actually be a dangerous period and things could become more negative because we're seeing rising protectionism, we're seeing rising xenophobia, we're seeing unfortunately a growing sense of inequality between the rich and the poor, because COVID-19 has not hit e people equally, it's hit the poor much, much harder, and that's creating resentment. And if that sense of anger and polarization rises, it could actually be a lot worse, because no one should ignore the fact that when we come out of this crisis, we're going to be facing not just a bad economy, but potentially huge debt burdens too, particularly in the West. And debt forces government to make choices about who's going to pay off that debt and how. And that could actually just add to the sense of polarization. So I'm hoping for the best.
but I'm also keenly aware of the risks of the worst. Uh, Julian, will uh, consumption and the production habit change permanently after the coronavirus? Sorry, say that again? Is the consumption and production habits uh, behavior, do you think that we will change after the coronavirus? For example, this Zoom that we are doing now, uh, do you think that will transform the journalism also in the future? Well, I think the fact that we're doing a television interview mm -hmm. as I sit on the floor of a study to try and get good internet, um, from the home is indication that we're living in a changing world because um, you know both digital networks are completely transforming how we work at the moment and we've essentially been accelerating trends that were already underway in the space of just a few weeks. Some tech companies say we've moved forward one decade in terms of our adoption of digital in just a week or two and that's really quite remarkable and I don't think we'll go back in that respect. But at the same time, our consumption patterns, I think, will change. We'll do more shopping online. We'll do more consumption of services online. But certainly in a place like America and Europe, I think for the short to medium term, there will be a new mood of frugality and caution and an aversion to conspicuous consumption precisely because there's a recognition that we're leaving, living in very polarized, unequal, unequal times. And the people who have wealth do not want to display it for fear of provoking more polarization. So I don't expect to see the kind of glitzy, um, boom, boom, rah, rah consumption that we had in the last few years playing out again, um, even if it's still happening underneath the surfaces. In the medium term, that might change. It's worth remembering that the war of, of 1914 to 1918 and then the pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. was then followed by the so-called Roaring Twenties in places like New York, when actually a party mood did develop subsequently and there was a lot of consumption. But it took quite a few years. And I don't think we're necessarily in quite the same place again, partly because of the high debt levels. Julian, before the crisis, the war was awash with liquidity, which some blame from having created assets bubble. Uh, where did the liquidity go? And will it come back quickly? Well, I think liquidity has many meanings to it. Mm -hmm. um, it means both the level of ease with which you can trade assets and markets, mm -hmm. but it also means the degree to which the central banks are providing money and cash for the system. And they're not always the same thing because the former requires not just money to be in the system, but also confidence. Um, and if there isn't confidence, then it's still not easy to trade. Um, so before the crisis, confidence was sky high and money was also freely available. Um, now money is freely available, but confidence is not there. I suspect that as confidence begins to return, you probably will get a lot of liquidity in the system. Um, and the question then really is what happens to it? Where does it go? Does it go into basically creating asset bubbles in crazy places? Or will it actually be used in a productive purpose uh, to actually build up growth for the future? Mm -hmm. I am entering now in the chapter of Latin America and before Argentina. The destruction of value that the coronavirus crisis is causing in companies destroying the value of companies in developed countries and generated opportunities to buy for less value, does this mean that the investment by companies in emerging countries are far from away because there is more opportunities 
in developed countries? Um, well, during the last decade, mm -hmm. there has been a perception in many investment circles that emerging markets offered a very interesting investment thesis because essentially you had a lot of opportunity cheaper mm -hmm. than you had in developed markets. That calculation has changed. We had $100 billion worth of capital fleeing from emerging market countries in the first few weeks of the COVID-19 crisis, um, which was three times the rate of capital flight we saw back in 2008 and 9. Um, however, I suspect that gradually over time, capital will return. In fact, it is already starting to very, very slowly return. And I think you will start to see more investors saying, as before, there's still a lot of long-term economic potential in emerging markets and that actually they've become so cheap that it's worthwhile getting involved. Um, however, I suspect we may also see a growing desire to invest in dollar-based assets in emerging markets rather than local currencies because of the recognition that the global financial architecture is still very dollar-based in spite of China and Russia trying to change that and that essentially a dollar-based um, asset will offer a bit more protection than a local currency asset. Julian, will the price of food, uh, raw materials fall, which are main the main export of Argentina and Brazil, or as people need to continue eating, uh, will they the more inelastic effect of the recession? Uh, do you see a difference between the minerals, uh, raw materials and food? Well, I think the food question is very interesting because there's been far too little attention paid to the food supply chain. And COVID-19 has crowded many aspects of the news out of the headlines. And what's happening in food right now, the global supply chain is one example of that. So I suspect there's going to be a lot of strain and stress on the food supply chains in the coming weeks. I fear that once again, that it will be the poor people who suffer so badly from that. Um, but I think that, you know, for a country like Argentina, um, focusing on food at the moment, if you can get the logistics of the supply chains working, um, may actually end up being, you know, potentially quite a good place to be in because people are going to need to buy food to eat. And the sheer shock of disruption is going to essentially put more emphasis and focus on the food supply chain as we go forward. The United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America forecasts that for Latin American, the drop in GDP uh, that is greater than the crisis of 1929 and even worse than in 1914 with the Spanish flu. Will Latin American be the most affected area in the world with the coronavirus? I'm not sure yet which areas are going to be most affected by the coronavirus, but certainly for Latin America it does look very painful. Um, that's partly because of the terrible medical toll in places like Brazil, um, but it's also, and also parts of Ecuador, but it's also because of their exposure to the global economic um, shock. And in addition to that, um, you know, you have the precarious financial situation in countries like, you know, Argentina, where we've already seen, you know, very intense and potentially quite messy negotiations with creditors taking place. Uh, Julian, Nobel Prize Joseph Stiglitz, who warned uh, of wave of defaults and asked for major debt forgiveness for poor countries. 
Can you comment what Stiglitz say and his ideas? Well, Professor Stiglitz is expressing a view of many people right now, which is that there is not going to be a proper repayment of many debts. Um, you simply cannot service these debts at the moment. Um, so the question really is, are you going to have a managed default or an unmanaged default? And is there some way to do um, a managed default that will buy in um, goodwill and ensure that these countries are put back onto a better economic path? Now, the IMF and World Bank um, have indicated some cautious support for these ideas. We've seen debt standstills. There are potential restructuring talks going on. They are vastly complicated because one of the problems today is that so much borrowing has been done from China. And if you can't get China around the table, along with groups like the IMF and World Bank, then you are both operating in an information fog, but also you're quite limited about what meaningful debt relief you can actually offer. So that's a very big problem, and it's going to become increasingly a problem in the coming months. But um, certainly at the moment, um, there is a discussion about the degree to which debt relief will or won't be needed. Um, and so Joseph Stiglitz's ideas have not be taken up completely, but they are being discussed. Does the coronavirus crisis demand a general policy for removing debts uh, for less wealthy countries? Do you think that it will change the IMS for the future? Well, the IMF has already changed um, as a result of coronavirus in that it's implementing far less austerity than before as part of its programs. It's also done things like create an emergency lending um, program for some countries, um, which from memory is about 100 billion. Um, you know, so the IMF is changing, but I do think that over time there will be more pressure to change. Um, and there'll also be more questions asked about its relationship with Chinese lending programs or not. Um, you know, the new IMF managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, is keenly aware of emerging markets challenges. She comes from emerging markets background herself. Um, so I think you will see more and more discussion around these issues. Argentina made an offer to restructure its external debts that was not approved by the creditors. Could Argentina be being used at the laboratory by creditors in the face of certain futures sovereign debt restructuring after the coronavirus? Well, I think the reality is that Argentina has been used as a laboratory for sovereign debt restructurings on many, many occasions in recent decades. Um, you know, it's been basically both been used as a test case with good and bad, um, repeatedly. And when it issued the 100-year um, bond a few years ago, that was seen as a test case for recovery and a sign of how a country could actually deal with creditors proactively and effectively. Now, of course, it's being seen as a test case for, um, you know, the nastiness of these negotiations. So this is a very long-running story, and I don't think it's going to have an easy or quick resolution. I'll simply say that it's currently in everyone's interest to find some way to resolve this and move forward, and hopefully create a more sustainable framework um, for the post-COVID-19 recovery phase. Julian, uh, bondholders argued that Argentina uh, are that a moderate write-off will be better for Argentina to return the voluntary uh, debt markets. Argentina's economy minister, Martin Guzman, maintains that prefer a reduction more than 50% because Argentina will not have a chance to talk in on debts on voluntary market again. 
would you think that is the best way? I haven't been close enough to the details of the negotiations to tell what is or is not needed right now. Mm -hmm. um, what I can say is that I wrote a column a few years ago saying that I thought it was crazy for Argentina to be issuing a hundred year um, bond at the price it was issuing, or rather it would be crazy, so it wasn't crazy for Argentina, it was crazy for investors to be buying it, because the economic trajectory did not suggest that the country was going to be in a very stable place. And as everyone knows, Argentina has defaulted tragically many, many times. Um, what is clear is that you need right now not just a realistic um, restructuring of the debt program, but also a realistic economic program going forward. You need both elements of it. Um, and Argentina tragically does show very clearly the problems with the current mechanisms for negotiating sovereign debt restructurings, because essentially you have creditors who can hold a country hostage, um, who can essentially um, you know, drag these discussions out for years and years and years, as we've seen in the past. And that is to nobody's benefit, because you know, the longer these discussions go on, the greater the danger that Argentina stays in economic limbo and cannot get on with the post-COVID-19 recovery. The fact that uh, there are five investment funds that concentrate a large part of the debt, that is a favor or make different to negotiate? Um, the fact that you have a fragmented creditor mm -hmm. base always makes it difficult to get negotiations. Um, it's always much easier when you have a speedy way of getting people around the table. Um, the reason why the Chapter 11 process in restructurings in America has worked so well is because you have someone in charge who can not just usually um, you know, assemble the creditors in one place, but then force a resolution, do a cram down on them quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and as we've seen in so many cases of sovereign debt restructurings around the world, whether it's in Puerto Rico, whether it's in Argentina, whether it was in Greece, when you have a fragmented creditor base and no one's clearly in charge, you have the recipes for a disaster. And that is absolutely one of the big headaches that a country like Argentina is facing. And it's likely to be increasingly the headaches going forward for many emerging market countries, um, because of partly because of the presence of the Chinese debt. And you shouldn't lose sight of the fact that if you look at the IMF today, half of the membership of the IMF have gone to the IMF asking for some form of support. Um, you know, debt and rating agencies are predicting anything from a dozen to, in some cases, almost two dozen sovereign defaults coming up over the next couple of years. So what's happening with Argentina is really just part of a bigger trend of potential emerging market defaults and financial crises right across the emerging markets. Julian, uh, which is your recommendation we give to Argentina government in the relation with the IMF? I wouldn't dare to give advice to the Argentinian government in dealing with the IMF. Um, you know, you want to keep them on board with goodwill. Um, you know, the loan they extended to you two or three years ago was very striking um, in its size. Um, and clearly, there needs to be a grown-up, worked-out solution. Um, clearly, the IMF realizes that there needs to be flexibility on all sides right now. but. You know, there needs to be credibility in the economic program, and that is what the IMF, as I understand it, is pushing for. But um, I wouldn't dare give advice to the Argentinian government right now. Uh, 
which is the influence of the United States in the decision of the internationally monetary fine? Is decisive? Um, the U.S. has a very tortured relationship with the IMF um, because you have the U.S. as the largest shareholder, mm -hmm. and in some elements, it's keen to maintain the power of the IMF to act as a kind of counterpoint to the Chinese and the Chinese institutions. But at the same time, you also have, um, you know, an administration of Donald Trump that has said it does not like multilateral organizations. Mm -hmm which has questioned the value of the IMF on occasion. Um, and where essentially you have, you know, at best relative disinterest on the part of Congress, at worst actual hostility towards the IMF. So you get very contradictory messages right now. Um, and to be honest, I think the grim reality is that the COVID-19 crisis has been so overwhelming that I don't think people in the White House are thinking much about Argentina at all. Um, and the voters certainly aren't. And frankly, that's probably a relief because it means there's a higher chance of getting some kind of rational crisis, sorry, some kind of rational resolution, mm -hmm. um, rather than if it was being very politicized inside America right now. Julian, Argentina last president, Mauricio Macri, was welcomed by the global community as his this layer of populism, while international investors allow Argentina to borrow uh, greatly. Then the IMF bailed out the country, present a completely inaccurate economic projections, and saw the country sink deeper into stagflation. How much responsibility do the private creditors and the IMF have in the Argentine collapse? Well, I think at the end of the day, the private creditors were responding to what the Argentinian government did. I mean, the Argentinian government wanted to sell 100-year bonds and big other bonds um, and make promises. And, you know, they were believed or accepted by the private creditors and the IMF. So unless you say that actually the private creditors and the IMF should have simply not believed the last government, um, then it, I think it's wrong to put all the blame on the private creditors or the IMF at all. Um, you know, the reality is that Macri was seen as this new darling of the global financial community. You know, I was in Davos a couple of years ago when he turned up and he was one of the hottest things out there who everybody wanted to meet amongst the banks and the hedge funds. Um, and he had a very convincing story to tell, as did his cabinet. Um, but tragically, it didn't play out that way. So I think at this point, you know, pointing fingers and trying to say that somehow a stupid creditor's fault is not helpful at all in terms of trying to find a proper economic recovery plan. Uh, Julian, today in Argentina, uh, there is a discussion about a special tax uh, for the 12,000 richest people in being discussion as a contribution to alleviate coronavirus crisis. What do you think about these wealth taxes? Well, I think the topic of wealth taxes are going to become an increasingly um, hot issue of debate all around the world because coronavirus is not only creating more national debt for most countries, but also creating rising levels of inequality and the question of how you preserve social cohesion. It's going to be absolutely crucial. So Argentina's discussion about a wealth tax reflects a bigger global trend. It's always very tortured. It's always very tangled. 
But I suspect that that's something we are going to see more of. And I suspect that actually the rich will need to pay more taxes going forward. And Thomas Piketty proposed a strong heritage tax as a firm improve the inequality income distribution. Do you agree with the ideas of uh, Piketty? I think that Piketty's arguments about um, the need to look at income inequality and the issue of inheritance taxes um, certainly have um, a strong element of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that looking at the offshore regimes is critical. Um, I think that looking at ways of creating global taxation systems, not just for individuals but for companies, is also crucial. Um, the fact that you know big digital companies in America have been able to keep their tax bills so extraordinarily low for so long is frankly um, you know a disgrace, and that's very much part of the problem. It's not just about rich individuals; it's about rich companies too. We'll- We will have the last two questions. Okay. Helen, can you give me five minutes? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, can, I, can I pop out in five minutes or do you need me right now? No, just, just come out five minutes. Okay. okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sorry. Don't Thank worry. you. Don't worry. Right, yeah. The last two questions. You okay. live in, in Japan as a correspondent for the Financial Times and you wrote a book, Saving the Sun, about Japan. Uh, Simon Cruzet, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1921 for his work on growth, he said, there are four types of countries in the world, developed, undeveloped, Japan without resources developed, and Argentina that having all the resources not. I ask you for a final reflection about the lack of growth in Argentina in anthropological terms and the relation with Japan that is the opposite side. I think Argentina is fascinating and as you say it's got so many resources, so much potential. It has in the past been you know, widely admired on the world stage but we're talking the past being 150-200 years ago when it was wealthy um, and something went wrong um, and I very much hope that in a way Argentina can learn from countries like Singapore or Japan which are not blessed with rich natural resources to find a better path forward in the future. Because if you could actually have the same level of creativity you've had in countries like Singapore combined with the natural resources, then Argentina would be an astonishing place to be, an incredible economy. And the last one. Anthropology is a discipline that allows us to discover which non-explicit categories or silos or silos operate within within the society. In your book, The Silo Effects, you wrote, silos exist when people in different parts of an organization don't talk each to each other or don't share enough information. But we also have mental silos that are established categories in which we play things uh, to, to the type of silos often interact destructively. Can Argentina's decline be explained by the ways that the silos are categorizes our society? I think all all societies are grappling with this problem of tunnel vision and blind spots. Mm-hmm. And anthropology's main con- contribution to policy debate is to try and highlight those blind spots and to show how dangerous tunnel vision can be. And I suspect that post-COVID-19, we're going to need a much more holistic, joined-up way of looking to the future. So what's happening in Argentina with the public policy debate today, I salute. 
because there does appear to be an attempt to find a more holistic way of looking at economic policy making. Um, and I very much hope that that leads to a better set of economic policies that help bring Argentina out of the current crisis. Um, unfortunately, when people are scared, when they're threatened, they tend to retreat into narrow vision, into tunnel vision, and they tend to have these blind spots. But we need to overcome our blind spots. And the point about corona, the, the point about the COVID-19 crisis is that before really January this year, the issue of medical risk was so underplayed in most of the economic models and most of what policymakers were talking about. Now we've learned that something we tended to ignore as an externality has got the ability to overturn all of our assumptions in the world. So I really hope that after coronavirus, we actually ask ourselves, what are the other aspects of our world we are ignoring, which could actually overturn our assumptions about the future? Things like climate change, things like income inequality, inequity. And let's try and find a way to deal with them better than we've dealt with COVID-19.